Oh, to be like thee, what a wonderful aspiration. And I think it is the aspiration of probably nearly every person that's gathered here to be like Jesus. And in worshiping him in his presence in this way, learning about his word and encouraging one another in our faith, we can more and more be like him every day. As we said this morning, it is good for us to be here for these and many other reasons. I'll talk to you tonight about um, what a little knowledge can do for you relative to your Bible knowledge. And what it can do is not much, but it can make you a very, very dangerous person. There are a lot of people in the world today who are really dangerous when it comes to their opinions and beliefs about religious things because they have a little Bible knowledge, but they don't have nearly enough. Regularly on social media and in looking at comments in sections of news reports, I do that sometimes to entertain myself, um, you see all sorts of claims uh, about things related to spiritual matters, and you see a colossal amount of ignorance in this world, particularly about topics relating to the Bible. One would think, I mean, if you're just, you know, thinking about it in the macro view, that in this, what we have sometimes called the information age, and the communication age, and the digital age, all implying that we can all share all kinds of information all the time, and you know, you just ask Alexa or Google or somebody, any, you know, any question, you can find the answer to almost anything in about five seconds. You would think in a world like that, that uh, knowledge would be increasing exponentially about everything. But we all know, and in fact, I think most, of the people, most people in the world recognize that knowledge is not increasing exponentially. Disinformation, false knowledge, and frankly, all-out ignorance is increasing to a great extent. Instead of pooling facts, we pool our opinions and we pool our ignorance. And so we're swimming in this world, both related to all sorts of social matters, but I'm concerned about spiritual ones. We are swimming in a sea of ignorance. It is so disheartening to see the things that people think God wants of them, people think God is saying are true and right, that are the exact opposite, the exact opposite of what the scriptures plainly teach, if we just knew what the scriptures teach. And this is an indictment of a whole lot of people. I realize that I'm painting with a really broad brush. I don't think people in the Lord's church know what they used to know, by and large. That's a pretty broad brush as well. But I know the world doesn't. What little knowledge that was in the world a few decades ago regarding spiritual things seems to have, have diminished greatly because of the very factors that we're talking about. The, the, the problem isn't new, and I'm not saying that the digital age created this. It did not. It was existing back in the time of Christ. There are all sorts of people with all different opinions about a whole bunch of different things. You read through John chapter 7, you can't help but be impressed with how many different opinions there were about Jesus. Some said he was good. Some say, no, he deceives us. Some say, you know, how can uh, anything, you know, on and on. Well, you get it. Jesus experienced it. 
When he was in the temple during his last week, uh, several groups of people approached him, all of whom had wrong ideas about Scripture, none of whom, it seems like, were willing to accept his correction. The Sadducees come to him and they ask him this question about, well, this woman that uh, she w- was married and her husband died, so she, she, she married the brother and then he died and she married the next brother, up to seven brothers, and then she died. And so in the life after, whose wife will she be? Jesus answered them and said in Matthew 22 and verse 29, You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. How could it possibly be that the Sadducees, among whom was the high priest of the Jews in the day, how could it possibly be that the Sadducees did not know the Scriptures? But they didn't. And because they didn't, they were in error. When we think about really trying to understand what God is saying in his word and and not making mistakes just because we don't really know enough about it, a couple of principles, I think, should demand our attention. Two principles of safety to go by. Don't use a passage to prove or conclude anything if you don't know its context. Now, that's a particular application of a broader statement that Paul makes to Timothy that we're familiar with in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, where Paul says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That last phrase is suggestive to us that there is a lot of information in God's word and we need to be able to separate this from that and be able to you know, mesh it together where it goes together and so on and so forth, rightly dividing the word of truth. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about here's one application of that. You better know what the context is of a passage that you're using to base a conclusion on. Secondly, what's not on the screen, but the other aspect of this, Bible knowledge, knowledge of God's word, the word of truth, doesn't come by sleeping, okay? It doesn't come by letting your Bible get dusty on the shelf or by not, as we were talking about this morning, attending Bible classes or coming to worship assemblies where the gospel is preached. It's not going to happen if you don't put, if I don't put some effort into it. It is a lifelong study with diligence, as the New King James Version here says. Be diligent. So you have the diligence and you have the idea of understanding there are many aspects of Scripture to explore and discover. And that brings me to the next point, which is don't reach a final conclusion until you've thoroughly examined other passages on the same subject. Because all of God's truth on a given subject is seldom found in one verse. I wouldn't say never, but I don't know of a verse where all of his truth on a subject is in the one verse. Psalm 119 and verse 128, the psalmist observes this, Therefore, all precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. So God has given us a lot of his precepts, a lot of precepts in the word of God, and they're all, all of them are right. Can we be right if we don't have all of those precepts? Psalm 119, 151, you are near, O Lord, 
Lord, and all your commandments are truth. All your commandments are truth. We like that boy who was sharing just the other day, you know, that goes with his dad to the ocean. <laughs> and his dad says, son, this is the ocean. Look at this. this. This is the ocean. It's so vast. And the boy's playing in the water with his little plastic pail, and he dips some water out of the ocean, and he holds it up to his dad and says, look, dad, I've got the ocean in my bucket. That's how a lot of us are when it comes to truth. We've got this little bucket of truth. And this vast ocean of God's truth is completely unexperienced, you know. I'm reminding you of all of that. All of his commandments are truth. And if we don't examine those, how much of the truth do we have? So Psalm 119 and verse 160 says this, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The ESV and the ASV both have a, a, a way of putting this that I really like. Uh, American Standard Version, English Standard Version, say the sum of your word is truth. You have to write it all down and add it all up. Get to the bottom line. When you get to that, then you've got truth. This is described in Isaiah 28 and verse 10. Just the way that we learn facts, the way we learn truth, the way we come to understand reality. As we grow up as human beings, we go through learning stages and we're given a little bit here, and we couldn't tell, you know, that you can't teach a typical five-year-old calculus. I know some of you grandparents think your five-year-old can learn calculus, but probably not. But, you know, you, you start with some basic things, and, and you go along all the way. And this is how God reveals his word, and this is how we come to know his word. So Isaiah 28 and verse 10, for precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's how we gain knowledge of anything, and particularly God's Word, which is the subject under consideration in Isaiah 28. Lord willing, at the end of the lesson, I'm going to go back to Isaiah 28, so you might want to put a marker there, and we'll go back and look, and look at something there at the end. These two principles should be guiding principles when it comes to seeking knowledge from God's Word, seeking truth, and drawing conclusions, and not allowing ourselves to be dangerous influences because we just don't really know what the Bible says. We think we do. Let's don't be that person that, you know, gets on social media or makes a comment in some news feed that is so one-sided and so oblivious to all of God's truth, maybe just taking a verse or a concept completely out of context and applying it exactly where it doesn't go. Let's don't be that person. If we're going to share information, let's make sure that we're sharing the truth using these principles. I'm going to share with you some examples of wrong conclusions based on little knowledge. These are just a few examples. They could be multi multiplied by uh, thousands, I'm sure. Um, someone was telling me about one I think she just run, ran across yesterday uh, that could have been added to the list had I known in time. But uh, there's, there's lots of them. But think about this. Atheists, for instance, go to Psalm 137 and verse 9 to say that the, Bible, the God of the Bible is just evil and sadistic. He can't, he can't be a real God, not somebody who's so cruel as to do what is stated in 
Psalm 137 and verse 9, where the psalmist says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. The, the, psalm, uh, the subject of it is directed to punishing Babylon, punishing the people of Babylon. And here, it's not actually God saying this. This is a prayer of Israel to God. So first of all, that's the first mistake. <laughs> totally out of context to say God said this. No, this is kind of the wish, the prayer of the Isra- people of Israel. In fact, if you go to Psalm 137 in verse 1, and even look at the context, you have an inkling, you get, it, you get an idea here that something has happened to somebody that was just so egregious and horrible, and they, they have been so mistreated. Psalm 137 in verse 1, you learn that this psalm is a contemplation of the Israelites from Babylonian captivity. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. You can't understand this text at all if you don't know what the Babylonians did to Zion. And out of grief and anguish of heart of people who had had their loved ones murdered right in front of their eyes in Zion and seen, seen their city laid waste, the walls broken down, the temple destroyed and burned, person after person after person slaughtered before their very eyes, them taken into captivity. And in captivity, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. And when you come then, when you come to verse 9, and they're saying, blessed is he who takes your little ones, Babylon, and dashes them against the rock, what they're praying for is not for God to be cruel and merciless and heartless and some, you know, God that's just evil beyond comprehension. What they're praying for is justice. What had been done to them. And any atheist, I believe, who had had his people, his family, his property, his life, done to like the Babylonians did to the people of Jerusalem, would have wanted justice for that. How hypocritical, how wrong, how shallow to say, you know, God is an evil God because people prayed to him for justice. You want to know what the Babylonians did? 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 7. And you read the whole chapter, you just get the horrific scene, but I'm just going to take a couple of bits out of it. Second Kings, Second Kings rather, chapter 25 and verse 7. They killed the sons of Zedekiah, Zedekiah before his eyes. He's watching his children right in front of him. They, they kill his sons before his eyes, and then they put his eyes out. Last thing he sees. They put his eyes out, and, and they bound him with fe- bronze fetters, and they took him to Babylon. And he is maybe one of the ones, you know, that is pictured there in Psalm 137, praying for justice to the people that did this to him and his household. You can just picture that. Not saying he was, literally. I'm just saying that's the spirit of it. 2 Kings 25 and verse 9. He, that is 
the leader of the Babylonians, burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire and destroyed the city utterly. Little knowledge is pretty dangerous. You arrive at a conclusion about God and his nature, the God of the Bible and his nature, because on the basis of a passage that you really have no idea what it's saying. No idea. And yet, I have seen this site, this, this passage, this argument used on many websites run by atheists over and over and over again. This is their idea of the God of the Bible. Just a little bit of knowledge. Many use, of course, and we're really familiar with this, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, to condemn judging. Jesus says uh, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged. Well, that's a statement that uh, is true, needs to be followed. We don't need to judge lest we be judged. What's the context? Have we looked at the context? Have we looked at other truth about that? Is this all that the Bible says about judging? To some people, it is all that the Bible says about judging. It's all they know. In fact, some people, it's the only part of the Bible that they do know, right? What's Matthew 7 talking about? Next line, the very next word. Judge not that you be not judged, for. Now, that's going to explain something, right? <laughs> we're for right there. That's going to explain a little bit to us. For, with the same, with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So first of all, here's the first principle Jesus is teaching. You don't want to judge with the judgment that you don't want to be judged with, because you're going to be judged with the judgment you judge with, right? <laughs> so you don't, want to, you don't want to judge with a judgment that you don't want to be judged with. That's the first point he makes. Secondly, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? I mean, don't judge when the other guy's got a little problem and you've really got the big problem. Look at yourself first. First, take the plank out of your eye. Then you can, wait, you're not supposed to judge. Well, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> hiccup, hiccup here. Hiccup coming. Uh, take the plank out of your eye and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You can judge them after all. How about that? You just need to get the plank out of your eye. Point number two. Point number three. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, third aspect of this is the hypocrisy of judging when you yourself have the same problem. Do the people who say, oh, you can't judge me because... You know, you're not supposed to judge. They have all of that in mind. Are they talking about this kind of judging? Nine times out of ten, not. The Bible, of course, has a lot to say about judging. Jesus said a lot about it. In John 7, a text I was alluding to a moment ago, uh, all kinds of opinions about Jesus being uh, outed in John chapter 7, here and there and everywhere, and Jesus is telling people, you need to judge about me. You need to arrive at a conclusion about who I really am. But he says, don't judge by appearances. Judge righteous judgment. He's commanding them, telling them, you have to make a judgment about me. If Jesus, if we cannot decide, if we cannot decide that Jesus is the Son of God, we can't make a judgment. You see, 
If you're not allowed to make any kinds of judgment, you can't make any kind of judgment about is Jesus good, is he bad, is he the son of God, is he a liar or lunatic, what, you know, what is it? We ought to make a judgment. That is a judgment. He says, judge righteous judgment about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15, uh, Paul, Paul says in that context that he who is spiritual judges all things. You never hear that one quoted. <laughs> you never hear out of context, in context, anything. And I'm not going to talk about the context right now, but he who is spiritual judges all things. Why didn't somebody quote that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, on in that context, in chapter 6 and verse 2, do you not know that the saints, those would be us, the saints will judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge the angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Now, in, in the context, we'll talk about that for a second here. Um, he's talking about two brothers uh, aren't agreeing about something, and so one takes the other to court, goes to law, sues him, uh, whatever, to resolve the matter. And Paul's trying to say, look, surely you're not taking your judgments among yourselves to somebody out in the world who doesn't know anything about righteousness right before them. You've got Christians, saints are, are wise enough to make judgments like this. And he's making this argument that we've got to make judgments about a lot of things. And we're going to make judgments about a lot of things as God's people. Don't put that off on the world. Make the judgments you're supposed to make as a Christian. And help one another out when you have disagreements. So, again, that's just a lot of quick information. And I'm not giving you all the information you need about this. Let me be clear about that. I'm just pointing out that people with just a very little bit of information clearly, clearly are dangerous when it comes to spiritual truth. You know, we have televangelists and that's my word for them, I guess. You might call them TV preachers, but they're more than just the ones that are on TV. A lot of them might be in our neighborhood, um, you know, evangelism churches, so-called, community churches, so-called, other places. They read John 10 and verse 10. Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep and protecting the sheep. And he says, this is, again, just so ironic, so ironic. Jesus, it says, the thief, now Jesus is the good shepherd protecting the sheep. His people are his sheep. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. And the people preach this, and they say, oh, yeah, Jesus came so you can have life more abundantly, and that means you're going to have more money and more things. That's what the abundant life is. And all you have to do to have more money and more things is to send me your money. And they're exactly the people that Jesus is describing. They come to steal. And they're using the very passage where Jesus says he's protecting his sheep from that to steal. The abundant life that Jesus is promising 
is not a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. It is a straight and narrow way. It is a way fraught with persecution and hardship and travail. That's the way that Jesus is promising. Jesus never said that your life is all about health, wealth, and prosperity. He never promised people that. In fact, he said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Take those two statements, just those two statements. I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly, and a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Could you possibly put those two ideas together and think that when Jesus is saying you can have life and have it more abundantly, he's talking about material prosperity. When he just said that's not what your life, that's not what life is about. Abundance is not about material prosperity. You only need one other scripture to figure out that can't be a right application of John 10, 10. I want you to go in your Bibles. I, I was reading this the other day in this connection, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We know this as Paul's plea to the Corinthian church to do some giving that they had promised to do for some poor saints. And he's using other saints, uh, churches of Macedonia and Achaia, who, who were so, um, so freely charitable. And it was just astounding. Even though they were poor and in affliction, so he writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2. And he says, In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So here are people who are poor, they're really poor, they're in deep poverty, and yet they're givers. He says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. In other words, we're sharing this with the saints. And not only as we'd hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. There were people who were, were giving of their material means to help others, poor saints in Jerusalem. But the key to all of that, of course, was first they gave themselves to the Lord. If you give yourself to the Lord, then everything else is His anyway, right? But the, the verse I want you to look at is, sometimes we don't even read it in this context, verse 7. But as you abound in everything, okay, now we're looking at people who are living the abundant life that Jesus promised. I have come that you may have life. These people were abounding in everything. Wow, they must have had gold just coming out their pockets, right? They abounded in everything. What did they have? In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, in your love for us. There's not a nickel in there, is there? <laughs> that's, that's all spiritual stuff. That's, that's the abundant life. That's the abundant life. They were abounding. Well, that went too far. I don't know why. One, one heavy click, I guess. I was a heavy clicker there. Um... Yeah, back up one more. Okay, I will. We're going to get there eventually. Okay, that was too far. That was too far. 
Here's where we want to be. Calvinists use John 3.16 to teach that all you have to do to be saved is believe, and that their believing is nothing more than just a mental assent or believing, has nothing to do with any action on your part. So a lot of people can quote, more, more people might be able to quote Matthew 7 verse 1 than John 3.16, but it's, it's going to be pretty close. Pretty close. John 3.16, Jesus, uh, in the context of been talking to Nicodemus, says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so our Calvinist friends read this and they just say, whoever believes, you're going to have everlasting life. And by the way, you can't have everlasting life ever taken away from you. You never lose everlasting life. It's everlasting, you know, argue like that from this passage. Just a whole bunch of thoughts that are not connected to any Bible reality. One of the things I really like to do when somebody says that John 3.16 teaches this is to ask them if they know that you know that you know John 3.16 you know context is really important. Could you tell me what John 3.14 and 15 say? Do you even know what John 3, you don't have to quote it, just can you tell me what's in John 3, 14, and 15? And no, they can't. No idea. They've got a verse they've taken out of context over and over and over again to prove their Calvinistic point. John 3, 14 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. Jesus compares him being lifted up on the cross to the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. You remember what happened in the wilderness? Israel disobeyed. God sent snakes, fiery serpents among them. Everybody that was bitten died. But God had Moses put a bronze snake on a pole and lift it up. And people who had been bitten by the fiery serpents, if they just believed, just believed, they would be saved, right? They didn't have to do anything because this is the parallel. The way they got saved by the serpent in the wilderness is the way we get saved by Christ lifting. Both are lifted up. What do the people in the wilderness have to do? We just believe in that bronze snake. We just believe that it's going to save us. They had to believe in that. They had to believe in the God who said to do that. But they had to do something else too, didn't they? They had to actually, they had to actually do something. A, a, somebody might even call it a work, an action, a deed. What did they have to do? Well, probably everybody in here knows. You had to look at the snake. You had to look at the bronze serpent. That's the parallel that Jesus makes in the context. And the idea that John 3.16, when he says believe, the idea that that precludes, rules out, works, is nuts. Even in the context. It didn't rule it out with the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. 
in two verses before. And yet we haven't looked at the context. And we haven't considered a lot of other Bible verses sometimes too. The Bible says that the Lord will, re- will render to each one according to his deeds. It matters what you do. This is Romans chapter 2 and verse 6. He will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Is it right to do good because you're seeking for glory, honor, and immortality? Yes. Does that mean you earn your salvation? No. But the Bible's so plain. (laughs) The rich young ruler comes, comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Oh, you can't do anything, right? No. No, that's not what he says. He tells him, as a Jew living under the Old Testament, what he needed to do. There are those who conclude that Mark 11 and verse 24, which says this, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe in them, and you will have them. So we have these name it and claim it people running around today who just say, all you have to do is name it in prayer to God, and you got it. He's like genie in a lamp. Uh, whatever you be- if you believe it, just name it, claim it, it's yours. And they base it on a passage like Mark eleven twenty four. Of course, in the preceding verse, again, looking at context a little bit, Jesus had just said this, For surely I say to you that whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. So, so, these people who literally want to take Mark 11, 24, and apply it to everything in their lives need to be moving some mountains. Literally. Right? Just context. The Bible says, sure, we must believe. And believing gives power to our prayers. A lot of power to our prayers. James deals with this James chapter 1, if we don't have faith, you know, our prayers are not going to be powerful. But if we believe, we can receive. But that's not the only thing the Bible says. So we have to look at all the Bible says. For instance, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If it's not his will, we're not likely to receive it. But if we know that whatever he asks... If we know that he hears us because we've asked according to his will, then we know that we'll have the things we ask for. Earlier, John had said in 1 John 3.22, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Again, if you just took that by itself, you'd say, whatever we ask, we receive from him. That's like Mark 11.24. We're just, we're going to get it. But there's some more to that sentence. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So just in those two passages, you need to be keeping his commandments, you need to do what's pleasing in his sight, you need to ask according to his will. So there are other facts and and truths that we need to consider before we say, all I have to do is name it and claim it.
I really appreciate your good attention tonight. And I think, uh, to use a, a phrase maybe that's used some in the world, I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, I kind of understand that I'm preaching to those who understand that you need to understand a lot about the Scriptures. I want you to go back to Isaiah now. Isaiah chapter 28. And as you're turning there, as we conclude, I want to say this, that may sound counter to everything I just said. Bible knowledge is no guarantee of salvation. There are people who know more about the Bible than anybody in this room who are certainly not saved according to the will of God. For some people, a lot of Bible knowledge is as dangerous as a little Bible knowledge. What determines that? Bible knowledge is important. But what determines whether or not a person, as he's gaining Bible knowledge, is is actually going to be right with the Lord? You've got to gain it. We've We've seen it. You need that knowledge. Isaiah 28, starting in verse 10. Precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Okay, that's what we talked about before. You've got to build, keep on diligent, add a little bit here, a little bit there. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people. This is a prophecy about what God will do for Israel. To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. God had promised Israel rest. He says, here's the refreshing that I'm going to give you. Yet, yet, they would not hear. They really didn't want what God was offering. He still gave them the knowledge. So the word of the Lord was to them, but the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little that they might go, go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Why? Because their attitude wasn't right about God's Word. They weren't learning it to live it. They weren't learning it to please Him. He was giving it to them. He was building them up in their knowledge. And they could care less about doing it. That's why. So knowledge is not enough. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 17 and verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You need to know. We need to study. We need to study context. We need to study deeply. We need to study broadly. But we can study and study and study, and if we're not going to do it, we're lost. Tonight, are you going to do it? Do you know what the Bible says you need to do to be saved? Do you know what the Bible says if you're a Christian, you've committed a sin? Do you know what the Bible says you ought to do with that? I'm satisfied probably everybody in this room does. So what are you going to do? We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.